Hey, it's John Ingle, and I'm excited to share that registration is now live for Grid Tech Connect Forum California. Join us in Newport Beach June 24th through the 26th for the interconnection event. We're bringing together utilities, developers, regulators, and advocates to take on one of the biggest challenges facing the energy transition, both at the DG and utility scale levels. Click the link in the episode description and use promo code PODCAST to save 10% on admission. Join our partners from the Department of Energy, NREL, Southern California Edison, PG&E, Kaiso, Sunrun, NG, Convergent, AES, and so many more for this impactful event. We'll see you there. Welcome to another episode of This Week in Clean Tech, a roundup of the week's biggest stories you need to know in climate and clean energy in 15 minutes or less. Today is Friday, February 23rd, 2024. I'm Renewable Energy World Editor-in-Chief John Ingle. We have Amanda Chu from Financial Times joining us very shortly. But for now, I'm joined by Clean Tech PR veteran Mike Casey of TigerCom. Hey, Mike. Hey, John. I'm getting fired up for our live episode next week. For anyone attending Tech in Orlando next week, uh, we invite you to watch us live at 1145 Tuesday morning at the interview studio, which is booth 4012. Yeah, and a lot of other good podcasts going to be joining us next week, too. We've got Energy Gang, um, DER Task Force is going to be there. Um, the, the Latitude folks are bringing carbon copies, so do check us out if you're going to be in Orlando. And we want to thank all of you for, as always, sending in those story recommendations and your nominations for Clean Tecker of the Week, which we will get to at the end of the show. Um, send those to rew at clarionevents.com, and we'll take a look and always have an ep- a link in the episode description as well. All right, Mike, get us started. Simon Jessup and Ross Kerber from Reuters wrote a story titled J.P. Morgan State Street Quit Climate Group BlackRock Steps Back. John, what'd you think? Yeah, so here's the the details here. J.P. Morgan Chase and State Street's investment arms both withdrew from a global investor coalition, Climate Action 100 Plus, so that's CA 100 Plus, which advocates for company it advocates for companies to decarbonize. BlackRock also reduced its level of engagement with the coalition. Um, CA 100 Plus encourages companies to create guidelines on their role in addressing climate change and disclose how climate change impacts their finances, such as how they plan to use carbon credits to meet their pollution targets. Collectively, the withdrawals totaled nearly $14 trillion in total assets uh, from Wall Street's initiatives to combat climate change. Mike, this feels like the ongoing war against ESG just in another chapter. What do you think? Um, they said that their the firm said their reason for withdrawal was because they wanted to build up their own investment stewardship capabilities. If that's true, then I'm not just better looking than John Engel. I'm also younger than him. Let's call this for what it is. For our, for our listening audience, <laughs> neither are true. One hundred percent. This is the first time in human history. I'm quite certain that multi-trillion dollar financial powerhouses run away from proven investment strategies because the fossil fuel lobby rents a fuel poli- rents a few politicians to honk at them. Uh, Kate Yoder from Grist was on the show a few weeks ago calling this green hushing. It's more than that. It's disgraceful. To say this is a bad look would give bad looks a compliment. I respectfully suggest these masters of the universe cowboy up and defend themselves from the ideology over reality crowd. They're not going to stop until you do. John, story number two. This is from Pritchard Strong from WRAL News. He wrote uh, a story titled, quote, we got your money, see ya. 
customers <laughs> frustrated by Encore solar closure. And I have a connection to this story that we'll get to in just a minute, Mike, but your thoughts you, first. You most definitely do. So more trouble in rooftop solar for these door-to-door ripoff artists. When Encore Solar went out of business, 190 of their customers were in the process of installing panels. Uh, now they've been left with hefty loans and panels that just aren't hooked up. Uh, customers were told they wouldn't need to pay for these panels until they were interconnected and generating power that would offset their electric bill. But when the panels were installed, no one came to turn the system on, leaving them with a loan payment, but no solar power. Um, John, I think your angle on this story is even stronger. Yeah, I sent this to you this week because uh, it's it's a callback, dear listener, to a story that we covered a few weeks ago about this solar bros going door to door. And I mentioned that a company came to my door here in Asheville, North Carolina, and presented themselves as a, uh, a, a member of the utility advising all of the homeowners that, you know, the grid is broken and, and they're suggesting to go solar. Um, I didn't talk about the company at the time and later spoke to the CEO of that company because I was so concerned about that interaction and and believed that for the good of our industry and my neighbors, that that um, behavior needed to be addressed. That company was Encore Solar. Um, so a, a kind of an interesting development here. Um, I, you know, they're a national company. They're in a number of states, so they're not closing down. They're closing this office and I think their their footprint in North Carolina um, not connecting that to my interaction at all, but, uh, you know, when there's smoke <laughs> kind of situation. Um, so, so very interesting, at least for me, I, I, it pains me to see that the, you know, the families and, um, homeowners that are going through this. So it's, it's not a, a joking matter for them at all, but, um, just to, to round out that story, uh, thankfully, Goodleap, Encore's lending partner, told customers they'd consider deferring loan payments case by case until the solar systems are operational. So there's at least some relief there, but it's still a, a terrible situation. The industry's got to figure out what's going here, going on here. I, I don't know that we can wholly control these these resi companies that are going rogue and leaving a bad taste in the mouths of not just their customers, but voters. So this is my rambling um, moment on the show as, as I often rebuke Mike for doing, but Mike, any last <laughs> thoughts on that one? Yeah, this is not a, so just in case people were wondering a, a free pro trip, it's it, 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 for a pro tip. It's not actually a winning PR strategy to send unethical salespeople to the doors of leading trade journalists. That's a very bad PR strategy, and I don't recommend other companies engage in it. But what would really be great is if they would just stop these unethical practices. All you're doing is wrecking this industry for the rest of us. Mike, story three. One written by Anna Phillips in the Washington Post, how the housing industry is working to stop energy efficient homes. John, what you think? Yeah, homes account for about one-fifth of U.S. greenhouse gas pollution, much of that due to poor design and insulation. This is why new energy efficiency building codes are being proposed across the country at the state and local level. But home builders and their lobby are pushing back to avoid the increased upfront costs that would result from those decisions and actions. Some analysis suggests home builders are exaggerating how much of an impact those would have. But Mike, do you have any thoughts here? I'm sure you do. Yeah, Absolutely. If clean techers want to understand how incumbent sectors play hardball, look no further than this story. I mean, it's just this sort of flood the zone, don't leave any stone unturned when it comes to your economic advantages. So energy efficiency advocates say the industry is not as concerned about affordability as they are to, about profit margins. 
and the time it would take to train employees on these new requirements. I say they're absolutely right. And the benefits of homes with voltage outlets for EVs, especially as we see a shift to these vehicles, um, accompany the cost savings on electric bills. But the industry hasn't given that sufficient consideration. It's really a knee-jerk reaction that is quite short-sighted and I don't think serves anybody in the long run. John, our fourth story. Yeah, this one's from CNN. And Mike, I'm going to let you take this one and then we'll roll into our last story so we can welcome our guests. Um, This one's titled, A Traditional Automaker Just Turned a Profit on EVs. Yeah, the anti-EV types like to throw bottles onto the automaker playing field like a bunch of drunken fans at a soccer game. This This story might help them sober up. So yes, some automakers are cutting back on EVs temporarily. But, but, Stellantis, which makes Jeep, Ram, Chrysler, and Dodge brands, are seeing profits, prompting them to continue EV production. Stellantis CEO Carlos Tavares said that EVs are profitable, but not as much as traditional gas-powered vehicles yet. Still, they're shifting toward a pure EV lineup. Their earnings did fall 10% in the second half of last year, but they're still managed to achieve a 1% rise in full-year earnings. So EVs remain a high-growth sector, and Tesla remains the best-capitalized car company on the planet. The haters are going to hate, but those are the facts. For a good take on current trends, I encourage listeners to check out Jeff Wolf's really smart and insightful article on LinkedIn he recently put up. All right, John. Yeah, fifth story. So we're going to welcome Amanda Chu. And you mentioned the haters there, Mike. Uh, aren't you one of those when it comes to Tesla? I'm, edit- I'm editing your script for comments about <laughs> Elon Musk like every week to make sure that we don't like elicit the 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 Twitter and online mob. But anyway, moving on to Amanda's great reporting here from the Financial Times, Biden's clean energy conundrums. Amanda, you address some really um, interesting dynamics that are at play kind of simultaneously with the the onslaught of IRA investment that's going into predominantly uh, conservative Republican communities. Is it playing how is he balancing, you know, the the dynamic with trade uh, relations with China and and pushing away Chinese companies? It's fascinating stuff. But as Mike always does with our guests, I'll I'll let you point out what you think is the the main takeaway and what people should um, grab from this reporting. Yeah, thank you for having me. I mean, just to talk a little bit more about the you know main takeaway of the story. So. This week, one of the largest solar panel factories came online in the U.S. It's a joint venture between two very familiar names, Invenergy, the largest U.S. Um, private renewables developer, and Longi, the world's largest solar panel manufacturer. And it's a really interesting case study of you know um, the conundrums facing the Biden administration as it tries to build out a clean tech supply chain. And the two conundrums are, one, Longi is a Chinese solar panel manufacturer, the U.S. wants to reduce reliance on Chinese supply. It might need some Chinese expertise to build this out. And then the second sort of conundrum is that these factories are, you know, really large transformative economic opportunities in these rural towns. And they're spurring shifts in clean energy attitudes and attitudes towards like the trade profession. But people don't really tie it to Biden. And, you know, this is really interesting to look at in an election year. Amanda, I I noticed that this article had some similar points to other ones that I've read, which basically say that the goal of Biden industrial policy was to loosen China's hold on the supply chain. The counter push on that was, well, the intent of the IRA was to start loosening the hold on supply chains by getting jobs and things getting made here. 
And like the auction CEO, I noticed he said, I, I don't really care if Chinese companies come here as long as they abide by the rules and set up shop and employ Americans. So I, I'm, I hear from some folks that they feel like the goalposts got moved, that it, that they're saying that the very, very end goal is what the Biden industrial policies are being judged against as opposed to the immediate benefits. Do you think there's any, is there anything on point in that criticism? In, so in terms of like before that we allowed that it would be like, you know, Chinese companies can come invest in the U.S. Now that kind of attitude is changing. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, at the end of last year, we saw that Marco Rubio and Carol Miller introduced legislation in um, Congress to restrict Chinese companies and other foreign entities of concern from receiving the manufacturing tax credits in the IRA. This was not the original intent of the law. It's not in the original legislation. Um, and then you're seeing, you know, I focused on this story in Ohio where you have like these local residents um, protesting the factory, accusing it of being a Chinese Communist Party warehouse. But this is happening like, you know, with other Chinese related investments across the country. There's, you know, the Goshen plant, um, Ford, CATL's plant that, you know, was looking at Virginia, but then um, Governor Yunkin, um, you know, accused it of being a, you know, Trojan horse for China, similar rhetoric being used. Um, so there is this opposition to wanting Chinese companies to participate in the U.S. build out. Um, but, you know, even if a company doesn't have, you know, Chinese backing, they're likely going to use materials that can only be found in China. For instance, like Chinese solar equipment or, you know, the tape that you use in solar panels. China has such a grip on this sector that you really, you know, can't build out a domestic supply chain without China being in the equation. Amanda, I'm not a, a Capitol Hill lifer or a politics wonk like Mike is. So I, I boil down politics into like politics and policy into two, two main pieces. Is it good and will it help us? And so I think with the IRA, the is it good is, is being, you know, is proven out at this point, even just a couple of years into the deal that this investment is flowing into communities. People are getting jobs. Supply chain is getting built out. The will it help us piece was the bet by the Biden administration of can we li can we run on climate and clean energy and will that move the needle? And that's what I liked about your piece too, is it's exploring not only those trade deliberations, but is this thing going to push us across the finish line in an election year? And you, you mentioned in the piece, like that's less clear it's it's becoming like concerning more so than even less clear i would think for supporters of the administration right like what where's this disconnect and and why does it feel so wide yeah i mean when i when i was in ohio and i asked people you know like do you see this as an example of like what's happening at the federal level in terms of the ira the bipartisan infrastructure law and many people were like what is that um, yeah. What does it do? And it's just not translating to local communities. They actually see a more of a connection to the like state government, um, who has also been really active in terms of recruiting companies. I think like the disconnect is that people look at the prices um, that they're paying for food, etc. They're not really tying it to like these manufacturing projects. Um, and I focus on the Ohio story, but a lot of these factories um, that have been announced actually haven't come online yet. And so they're going to come online in the next administration if it's Democratic or Republican. We don't know. But um, we haven't many communities haven't seen the tangible benefits yet. 
John, we're just about out of time. I think we need to get to our clean tech of the week. I'm going to let you take that one. Yeah, Clean Tech of the Week happens to be a friend of yours, Mike, so I will take that one. Dan Sugar, CEO of Next Tracker, was recently featured on Jim Cramer's Mad Money on CNBC, uh, uh, noting the the meteoric rise of that stock and one of the best performing IPOs of last year. Um, so congratulations to Dan and the Next Tracker team for, for surging ahead. I want to give a shout out to our terrific producer, Brian Mendez, and to Alex Peterson and Claire Quirin for helping us identify this week's top stories. I also want to thank Amanda Chu for putting up with all of us for coming on the show. <laughs> yeah, please subscribe, give us feedback, share those story recommendations, and hopefully we see you at Tech International next week. Come by and say hello after we tape This Week in Clean Tech. All right, Mike, Amanda, see ya. Thank you. Hey, it's John Ingle, and I'm excited to share that registration is now live for Grid Tech Connect Forum California. Join us in Newport Beach June 24th through the 26th for the interconnection event. We're bringing together utilities, developers, regulators, and advocates to take on one of the biggest challenges facing the energy transition, both at the DG and utility scale levels. Click the link in the episode description and use promo code podcast to save 10% on admission. Join our partners from the Department of Energy, NREL, Southern California Edison, PG&E, Kaiso, Sunrun, NG, Convergent, AES, and so many more for this impactful event. We'll see you there.